we'll start. Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm the host where we are exploring the intersectionality between psychedelics and spirituality. There is a renaissance going on of psychedelics in our world, and we have an amazing guest today, uh, Dr. Thomas uh, Roberts uh, is a professor, uh, emeritus professor of educational psychology and uh, in Northern Illinois University. And the most recent book, well, at least the book that really got me excited was his book called Psychedelics and Spirituality. It was edited, uh, The Sacred Use of LSD, Psilocybin and MDMA for Human Transformation. Dr. Roberts, thanks a lot for coming on Unveiled. Uh, how are you doing today? Oh, uh, just fine. I'm, um, I'm recovering from uh, um, having a, 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 a skin removed from uh, cancer. Oh, okay. So yeah. I'm, I'm telling people that um, it was a duel, and I was uh, dueling a man because he had made unpleasant remarks about a, a one a woman's um, establishment, and so. Um, <laughs> But, but nobody believes me. No, I, I don't think they will. But uh, well, thanks a lot. Uh, this is a really, uh, you know, I, I, I love this book. And, um, you know, it was a beautiful collection, obviously it came out of this conference. And you have this mm. incredible g group of authors. I mean, um, to me, I, I've read lots of books on psychedelics. And uh, this one really comes closest to my heart uh, about, you know, what the potential and future uh, use of psychedelics is. And so uh, I'm so excited to have you on and to have a really good conversation uh, about your passion about psychedelics. And, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm going to, I mean, I know you put psychedelics in the title, um, but I'm going to begin to have a narrative that begins to move it toward language la like entheogen and other, uh, you know, other words that we can use for, uh, for these altered state experiences that are not centered only in plant medicines and so we'll we'll have this larger conversations about this but why don't we just start by your story uh thomas when did you first uh have an altered state experience uh and what was that like how old were you and what did that do for your perspective of the world and and your uh, role in it well it was in february 1970 and i was 72 it was actually it was at a church camp up on lake tahoe the camp had been closed for the summer, but friends of mine were able to get access to it. So, hold on, 1972, you said? Uh, 1970. 1970. And how old uh, were you at the time? I was age 32. You were 32? Yes, right. Okay. I wonder sometimes, suppose I had started psychedelics when I was high school, would I have been able to understand it or handle it all? I mean, I, I, it's just a question I, I don't know how to answer. Hmm. Because, you know, by then I had matured a, a lot and... and uh, and become some read some background in psychedelics and um hear a couple people talk about them so i think it was a good age to, for me at it anyway to start at take me into that experience because i'm always interested in people's first experience of these kind of what i'll call a non-dual state or a, a different awareness of your sense of self what happened what what was the experience like and what was the impact for you uh well i was seated in a in a chair that it washed up on the shore. It was an old beaten up rattan chair. I suppose somebody had thrown away for the summer because it really wouldn't be worth bringing inside. But I dragged up and sat on it uh, on the beach. My friends were with me in time. They were all having sort of separate trips, not far from each other, but separately. And I was sitting there. My first uh, interests, of course, were aesthetic, 
the clouds are going over over me and roiling like I'd never seen them go before. This being the winter in Lake Tahoe, everything is either white or black or gray, except way down at the end of the lake was California with um with its, its bright lights. Um, and they were sort of like little jewels tonight. But what really caught me was a, a sense of which I've been really following ever since, uh, a sense I call a portent. There's something very significant and wonderful and was has happened or would happen or had happened. The sense of portent really really got me interested. I mean, and what was this sort of idea? I call it portent now. I didn't have a, a name for it then. Just the fence is something um, amazing, wonderful, important, had happened, would happen, and, and was happening. So um, that got me inter interested in what is this thing? Now, as someone who's interested in ideas, rather than rather than get into the aesthetic of the situation, the way an artist or a musician might, I got into the ideas of it and wanted to chase down this sense of this sense of importance. And to me, being someone interested in ideas, the important was the importance of ideas. Mm. And so that really started my path on looking at psychedelics, ideas about them, things that people had written, my own experiences, and trying to make sense out of them verbally and intellectually and scholarly, which is the same path I'm following right now. Mm. That's, so that's become the, like for you, that became a defining pivot in your life. And it's almost like yeah. the rest of your life is a footnote to that very first experience. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. Right. I hadn't finished my dissertation at that time, actually. Mm. Um, and I started that fall teaching at Northern Illinois University. It was all but dissertation. I finished it two years later. I was doing it on Maslow's needs hierarchy. And at that time, he had started to talk about transpersonal psychology. Um, I talked to him about it, and I didn't understand what he was talking about at all. Mm. So I finished the, the dissertation on the five-stage needs hierarchy. Now, of course, he's added transcendence beyond self-actualization, which, of course, moved directly into transpersonal psychology and mm. ego transcendence. That, that, that's a very important point to make, and I think, I think it's Scott Barry Kaufman that just kind of re-highlighted that uh, yeah. in, in some of his work saying we really misunderstand Maslow when we stop at his transpersonal hierarchy uh, and we really miss his final stage which is this transcendence idea and you are saying uh, you you discovered that and knew that early on in your in your writing your dissertation, which dovetails into this idea of what psychedelics can do for us. They move us beyond the personal into the transpersonal, into the transcendent, which is the highest stage of what it means to be human. I I, I was just looking away, not paying attention to you, making myself send a send you a copy of the Maslow excerpts that I have from his okay. writing. I'll send those to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. So so for you there, you began to change your dissertation to really try to make sense of, of Maslow's highest stage. of. No, no, I didn't. I didn't catch on at the time. No, oh. I just did on, on with self-accusation at the top. Okay. And um, um, there was a period of overlap between my experience and Maslow, but I kept my dissertation on the five-stage hierarchy without self-transcendence, although my own interest had moved into self-transcendence. Mm. 
So then you began to teach in like about 81 already. I mean, this is it's yeah. shocking for for many of us that have come into this renaissance later on, right? It, yeah. We'll call it the, the post Johns Hopkins model, right? It's, it's post 2015. You were teaching psychedelic courses at Northern Illinois in 1981. Are you how did how did you get that approved by your by your faculty? Um well, I, for let me say, I was in the College of Education. And colleges of education are more open-minded than uh, most fields. If I'd been in psychology or sociology, I never could have gotten away with it. Mm. But in, in education, the question is, if this works, let's try it. And they don't really care what the origin of the ideas are or if they fit in with other ideas. Mm. So that actually makes it very open-minded. And um, I, I, in the summer of, um, let me see, Oh, the summer of uh, maybe 78 or 79, I was at Esselman with Stan Groff um, for a month, a month long. Mm -hmm. And one of the people there was um, James Jake Bacalar, who is a, a, associated with Lester Ginspoon at Harvard Medical School. And they were writing a book called Psychedelic Reflections. Mm -hmm. um, they asked me to write a, a chapter for it, and which is the first time I came out of the psychedelic closet to talk about my own experiences. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, I was afraid I'd get all kinds of terrible feedback from colleagues, uh, people across campus, and maybe state legislators. And the book came out, and I was sort of chewing my fingernails, wondering what would happen. And the answer is, yawn. Nobody no. said anything. No one cares. <laughs> I think they figured it out by that time. Well, the book the book came out in 1982, but I, I figured I'd try teaching the past. I'm not sure, actually, because it was 81 or 82. Mm -hmm. But... Um, when I, I offered the class, and uh, uh, as a, one of those one-shot special topics in studies of classes that every university has, and I had to put up notices around campus recruiting students. Mm -hmm. And you know, I had them photocopied and walked over students and was in buildings and corridors I never knew existed before. And my assistant department chair got a call from the provost wondering whether this was an appropriate topic to teach in a university. Mm. And just at that time, the paperback edition of Brinsfield and Bacalar's paperback, Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, came out. Not, uh, the first book, not the one I just mentioned. And it's a collection of all the work, as about 1972, all the work that we've done in psychedelics. It's an incredible collection of material of that, of that time. And the paperback edition, different from the hardcover, had a 40-page annotated bibliography. And if you've ever done, yes, if you've ever done a bibliography, an annotated bibliography, you can imagine what that was. Mm -hmm. And they annotated all the citations they had in the book. And I photocopied this and I sent it over to the provost with, I'm sorry to say, a kind of almost nasty letter. Mm -hmm. um, I got on my high horse, very, very, very self-righteous. And um, I told him, I sent this along as evidence that there is information in the field. And it was my understanding that the content of courses were just were assigned to every individual department, uh, not to the university in general. And that um, if he had any trouble with that, I'd be happy to have an open meeting with the um, council on um, university council or some such thing, which had representatives from every department. And I would claim that my department had the right to determine that my class could be taught. Mm. And of course, every every department representative would vote for the, for me. Mm. 
Wow. And two days later, my assistant department chair got a call from the provost saying, um, um, he had just wondered he he's in case somebody asked. Hmm. It was a question to protect your ass, I'm sure. Right, right. But I mean, and, and so he was protected, and so I was protected. And and my, in my department, um, I got a, I, I got by that time I had tenure. Okay, so that definitely helped. And um, they um, they they let me get away with a lot. And education is also kind of a very open-minded place, as I mentioned, and. Um, I could I could teach this course on a one-off basis, so I taught it on a one-off basis for a year, and then another year, and then I ended up teaching it for the next twenty years uh, on a one-off basis. Mm. And then my new assistant department chairman said, "You know, you're not supposed to teach the same course more than three years <laughs> in a one-off basis." So I went through the curriculum process and got, and got it approved, wow. and finally it, it was approved. Wow! And that's how it got catalog officially catalog listed. Wow. That's, uh, you know, I, I'm going to, that's really, it's really kind of, it's, it's such a, uh, it's such an amazing history because, you know, many of us just think these ideas are just starting to be talked about now. And we don't, we, we, we have to realize we're standing on the shoulders of giants who have been, you know, the Stan Groffs of the world, you know, the mm. Bill Richards, yourself, you, you, you know, you, you guys have been in the trenches working these academic, uh, uh, you know, frameworks out for 40, 50 years in the underground. And now all of a sudden there's this burgeoning interest and openness and now we get to draw upon all of your work that has been there all along. And so I'm discovering all of your articles and your books. And, uh, and for me, as, a, as a, an ordained minister who has now moved into uh, this psychedelic uh, realm and uh, realizing the open way of engaging with psychedelics, in, in, at least in Vancouver, this is not just about, you know, healing people from, uh, you know, mental illness and anxiety and depression, that this is a, these are spiritual substances. These are non-ordinary states of being that are very important for humanity, not just for healing, but for spiritual transcendence, for creativity, for insight. And, and, and so your work has been really powerful for me to see the potential of where this uh, movement is going. And I kind of wanted to start you there because you talk about four stages in the mm. history of the psychedelic renaissance, starting with kind of this healing modality of psychedelics as healing or something like that. Can you kind of walk us through those four stages? I think they're really important for us to understand as a scaffold. Yes, um, I, I see this as actually once we developing very naturally into the next one, where, where we are right now is, a, is the, the um, neurosciences and um, psychotherapy. And, and what I mean by a stage is that this is where most of the, the work, the publications, the intention the, um, is in that particular stage. That's not to say that, that some sort of previews of the other later stages don't exist. But basically, this is where we are now. Although right now, I think we're making a transition um, into the um, entheogen um, spiritual stage. I reserve the word entheogen for the spiritual uses of psychedelics. I do not use it as a synonym for psychedelic. So I see us as emerging from the, the clinical neuroscientist stage into the entheogen stage. And of course, this naturally happened. And the, the 206 or 2006 article at, at Johns Hopkins perfectly showed that. They were neuroscientists, um, pharmacologists, looking at the effect of psychedelics on behavior in the brain. 
And much to their amazement, people started to talk about what we would call spiritual experiences, states mm-hmm. of unity of consciousness. And this caught them. Uh, it did, I'm sure it didn't catch Bill Richard off guard. No, he no. Bill, very, Bill knew this was coming. I've asked oh, him yes, that yes, absolutely. And, yes. and he, he was like, I knew it was coming, but I have That's to right. allow the process of the psychologists to do their work. That's until right. they didn't have language anymore in their discipline to make sense of what was happening. Yes. And I, I admired them for uh, imagine submitting a journal with a spiritual development and meaningfulness in the title, the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Yeah. <laughs> that took a lot of guts. I and mean, that could have ruined their careers. I mean, what are these these nuts and Johns Hopkins talking about spiritual stuff and psychopharmacology? But with with uh, their incredible um, list of authors on there and Johns Hopkins back background, they, they did get it published. And that, that's the one that broke the ice. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I want to make, I, Thomas, I just want to make that distinction really important for, for the audience. This is interesting. I think what happened is they were interested in what we can do kind of psychologically for mental health. And then as they started to study it, they began to realize that as these people were reporting back their experiences, the language they were using were mystical experiences. They were having these, you know, in these non-ordinary states, there was a collapse of their sense of self and the other into one of this non, you know, non-dual experience, which was mystical. And, and they were like, that's how it's being reported is mystical and spiritual language. And these researchers are like, we can predict the, uh, how well people get based upon their, whether they had a mystical experience or not, at an 85% rate. That's shocking. Yes, and, and, and exactly the fact that um, being well correlated with the mystical experience mm-hmm. was the point that they, they brought out on that. And that's what's opened the door to all, almost all the research since, since then. Yes, and much to their surprise, yeah. So we're kind of still in, a lot of people are still in stage one, which is this kind of, uh, you know, neuroimaging. Hey, this is going to heal everyone. This is all going to be about mental health. And we're going to really help all the therapists and, and, and clinical psychologists get access to this so they can help their clients. And that is, that's a beautiful starting place. It's wonderful. But it's only the first step of a long line of, of where this where this could go. And that's why you're so interesting is, you know, where this is going. You have a you have a prediction of where this is going. So take me to step two. OK, well, well, well of course, we move from uh, the clinical psychoanthrogenic like, uh, experience to religion and spirituality. And then that becomes the interest. And now uh, um, you and I and people we know are, are developed that that area now. And this area um, is. I guess I was going to say fast growing. Um, people are catching on. Publications are catching on. Um, so, so that more people are beginning to to accept this idea that mystical experiences can be psychotherapeutic, and they can. There are both secular and non secular mystical experiences, mm-hmm. and um, most of the ones that we are running into are are secular. Uh, no, no, our spiritual guess. A little simple letter. This may have to do with the person set and setting as the as the major inter- interpretation of that. So now people are beginning are beginning. What I find really intriguing is the possible doing experimental studies in religion. And I can imagine all these courses like psychology, religion, sociology, religion, philosophy, religion, having experimental labs to them. Now, I can't I there can there are all kinds of problems about who would get to control this in universities? For example, suppose um, 
let's say, a philosophy professor of religion wants to have a lab experience for his graduate students to teach have them what, what a mystical experience is. Now, who has the right to determine that? Is it a university issue? Is it a curricular issue? Does the DEA have to say, no, you can't do that? But mm -hmm. it turns out you know, to be censorship. Now, here's an even better case. I can imagine uh, Jesuits or an or, um, um, order of, young, of nuns offering um, mystical experiences through psychedelics or being theogens in those uses. Now, who gets the right to say you can or cannot do that? Where does the freedom of, of religion issue come in on this? Mm -hmm. We haven't resolved that. And that, 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 that'll be a big issue. Now, I don't think, I would not tell any clergyman at random, I want to lead their, his congregation on psychedelic strips, trips. I think a lot of them just are not prepared right. um, uh, medically or, or theologically or psychologically to do that. But who has the right? Suppose some, you know, odd little church, some guy gets says, okay, we're going to do it in my church. You can't tell me what to do. This is my church. Right. Where does the freedom of religion come in on that? Well, because you're, you're asking questions about a sacrament, right? I mean, this is yes, a, exactly yes. This entheogen, yeah. this mushroom that grows in the ground can allow you to experience the divine within you in four hours. And it's almost a guarantee. This isn't like meditation that hopefully after 10 years of meditation, you begin to feel a connection, one with the universe after meditating for two hours of a day. I can take a random person, obviously set and setting is really important. I can prep them well and I can give them an experience now that where they encounter the divine and they don't, and, and it's, and it can change their life. That's interesting. I'm willing to say it's true for a lot of people a lot of the time, but not for everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who yep. would it not be right for? We have to have some sort of yep. diagnostic uh, instrument. I hesitate to use those words having to do with religion, but who might or might not um, benefit from it? And also the studies of people that have had unpleasant experiences also say that and looking back at them, they figured they learned a lot during those experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so facing the bad part of yourself and overcoming it. Mm -hmm. So and there's still and, and yet there still are people who've had mystical or had psychedelics and had brought out psychosis in them. Mm -hmm. So all yeah. these things we have to have to be looked at very very yeah. carefully. Yeah, there's a screening even more than psychotherapy, I think. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. we're 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 talking about religious and spiritual items here. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a big area that needs to be looked at. Now, what happens? This we start studying um, sacredness and the sacred experience, and this takes us up to the third stage. When it starts on the sacredness, we, we look at the sort of, I call them the, the sibling ideas, like what is truth? Mm. What is reality? What's beauty? Mm. What is ethically right to do and not to do? What is the sense of I? I mean, when I transcend my I, oh, how, how do I think about that? Now, these are the problems that are basically the rocks uh, and ground of humanities. Mm -hmm. So when we move now from talking about the theogenic use to what I call the ideogen use, mm -hmm. that is um, psychedelics as uh, generating ideas. Mm -hmm. And we can start to look at, for beauty is probably the one with most people pay attention to. I suppose practically everybody who's had any experience with psychedelics has been sort of amazed at the beauty around them. Mm -hmm. It might've been a tree or a flower or it might be one's own thumbnail. 
or, or, or who knows, on one's hands. And I have the sense of uh, beauty is intensified. So this gets to the intensifying effect or the sense of reality. Mm-hmm. For example, most people who study psychedelics have had the experience, this is real. This is really real. This yeah. is realer than real. Yeah. So reality can become a, an experimental variable. Mm. And so can truth, the sense of I, and all these things are the, that are the, the basic food of the humanities. So it can start doing experimental studies in the humanities. Mm-hmm. And also we can start using them, I would say, Stan Groff's view of the human mind as a way to interpret literature and philosophy. It, it, it provides, <clears throat> um, Stan um, probably has the most complete, deepest view of the human mind. Um, this was said by Charlie Grove and Roger Walsh in, in one of their books. Now, if that's true, what that person has to say about the arts and literature is very significant. So we have a new type of psychotherapy, or rather psychocriticism, and we have Freudian psychocriticism, and Jungian psychocriticism, and now we have Grofian psychocriticism. So this is the whole way of, of understanding the art, and of course, one's own life, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so this then takes us up um, to, to the ideogen stage, the third stage, using psychedelics to generate ideas and explore our current ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the big jump happens at, at this stage, or sometimes before, and somebody says, well, psychedelics will do this. Are there other things that can do this? Mm-hmm. And different types of meditation, breathing techniques, chanting, different types of hypnosis, dreams, um, exercise routines, um, brain stimulation, say magnetic and light and so forth. And all of these can also change our brain-mind complex. So rather than seeing psychedelics as a, one category, meditation is another, um, vision quest is another, I like to say what we need to do is to see that all of what all of these have in common is that they all can reformulate our brain-mind complex. Mm-hmm. And they're all part of this large, much larger field. And I, I call them for that purpose called mind apps. Yeah, mind apps. I love that. You had a, you have a phrase. I'm really proud of that idea. I love it because it, it really lands for the average person, right? Because yes. we understand that an app is a little, you know, a little sub program running on my phone that I yes. can use for different. It's like a little tool. I can use yes. this for this. This helps me with banking. This one helps me with this. But it's a collection of apps on my phone that I use for different kind of different needs I have. Yes. And you're saying psychedelics and and particularly entheogenic plants or psychedelic plants are part of a larger category of non-ordinary state kind of apps that allow yes. us to shift our mind-brain state uh, in for the as a tool use for us as human beings. So our, our view of what our, our brain-brain complex can be expands enormously to include all these, not just as some weird people somewhere off there in the woods, some witch, witch doctors do, but to realize that they're all looking at different ways of installing these um, in the brain-mind complex. And that, that is uh, what I see as the, the, the big idea here. Now, that, can, that develops into an even larger idea. We can talk about all using all these things separately mm. uh, um, as different, as in, different um, inputs, mind apps you can install. Now, how about think of them as ingredients yes. together in different, let's say, what happens if we include um, magnetic brain stimulation, uh, LSD, and uh, breath of fire chanting? 
Mm -hmm. We would produce a brain mind, mind state that has never been produced before. Mm -hmm. Okay. We can, there are an infinite number of recipes. There are all these various mind apps mm -hmm. putting together in different recipes and different amounts. You might have more or less LSD and more or less brain stimulation. All the possible recipes are ways of developing different mind body states. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the big thing. And then the question is are these states going to be good for anything? Which one will be good for which and which not? Mm -hmm. And I find the um, periodic table probably is a helpful analogy here. We have all these elements. We can put them together in any number of different molecules. And most of the combinations will just be interesting, you know, mm -hmm. but a few of them extremely useful. And I expect we'll find that um, with these new states of consciousness as we explore them. Mm -hmm. And our, our abilities may be stronger in some states and weaker in other states. Mm -hmm. The re research on creativity, for example, shows it's often associated with shifts in states of consciousness. Healing is an interesting one. If you look at the research on um, spontaneous healing, it turns out it's often associated with shifts in mind-body states. So maybe we can learn to get into states where our normal healing processes take place. Mm -hmm. And psychedelics, meditation, breathing, and all may help us get into those states. Yeah. So Gabor Mate, Gabor Mate, who's from Vancouver and has done a lot. I mean, he is part of the Santo Daime Church in Canada as, uh, you know, working with ayahuasca. Uh, and he works a lot with addiction. Uh, and uh, and he, he argues the same thing. He says, he says psychedelics are a really important tool, but when they're added to other kind of modalities, when they're kind of layered in like that, you can have these massive shifts that, that happen for people in not just, you know, healing, but for creativity, for insight, for family, for marriage, for, uh, for writing, for, um, you know, yeah, painting, uh, solving science problems. We, we yes. know that we, we've seen this in Silicon Valley with coders and their, their microdosing and even macrodosing of psychedelics to help them solve coding problems. They get stuck in a very complex code problem. They don't know where the, the problem is in the code line. They go into a deep altered state using high dose LSD, go back into the code and they can find it. They have a new awareness of how to fix code by using these altered states. So altered states are a very important part of the human experience. And they've only been bracketed out since 1974. Really, they become illegal since you know the, the war on drugs mentality. This thing for 50 years has been kind of sub subverted, but for the rest of human history, altered states, whether that's trance states, whether that's using breath, my indigenous brothers and sisters would say, Peg, this goes back thousands of years. We use the drum. We use drumming and shamanic work in, uh, in the longhouse or in, uh, you know, in the sweat lodge. They use heat. They use drumming. They use uh, to, to get into you into an altered state. So altered state, I, and I really want to get you into, you have a term that I really liked called uh, a single state fallacy. To me, oh. this, is, this is such an important concept. The people that, are, that, are, that I encounter, they're like, oh, Peg, you guys, you're really into you know, psychedelics. And I'm like, I'm not into psychedelics. I'm into the human experience. And the human experience for as long as we know, as go back as far as any kind of cave paintings, they have, have, have included altered state work as part of the experience of humanity. And it's only in the last 50 years that we've said, no, the head and the, 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 the state of awareness that is awake is the only state we can talk about. 
And you call that the single state fallacy. Can you take us into that fallacy, please? Yes, first let me say that I consider our ordinary mind-body state to have evolved for perfectly good reasons to help us survive and, and get along in the world. But because it's re um, survived and evolved for that reason doesn't mean it's the only good state. And um, trying, uh, I came up with this idea. It's actually, it's a tactic, actually. Um, in, in, the, in the scholarly world, you don't want to make a fallacy. Mm. So I came up with the idea of the single state fallacy, which is the erroneous assumption that all good thinking takes place only in our ordinary default mind-body state. I find the use of default again as a good word there. So, so we talk about our, our ordinary default state, but there are all these other states, these, these altered states. I call them altered mind-body states rather than states of consciousness. Um, now, the, the idea behind the single state fallacy is that I figured if I put that idea out there, people who are using it would start to become self-conscious of their own predilection and even bias towards... Yes only the ordinary default mind-body state. And that they would ask themselves, well, yes, this is a good state and I'm glad I'm in it and I do all my work in it. And I'm in it most of the time. Right now I'm a, I'm a little bit up on caffeine, but we, we allow that in, in our ordinary state. Hmm. And um, I, I wanted to get them to, to start looking at their own disciplines and their own practices in terms of being um, stuck in, in the ordinary default mind-body state. And to see that it's a very good state and I'm glad we got it, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it's the only possible state. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and like I suspect a, a, sleep a lot and dreaming. of dreaming. Uh, yes. We do it yes. every day. You go into a different state every single day as a human being, and yet we kind of bracket that as just silly and you know not important. And yet yes. we spend more time sleeping than almost any other, you know, activity in our life. And, and that has not been studied as much as we really need to, you know, to understand it. So, I mean, Jung obviously has lots about that in the, in the unconscious, but yeah, we, we use these single states and we, we prioritize or privilege one state over all the others as, uh, as what it means to be human. Yes, that's well, being a full human would be mean to develop every mind-body state and its uses and what they might be. I think a lot of what we consider impossible states like parapsychological abilities may be that way because they don't exist or very seldom exist in an ordinary mind-body state, but they may exist a lot more in, in other states. And of course, um, what I call the placebo ability is one of those. I don't use the word placebo effect. I think there's a logical problem there. For example, we're doing research and we give somebody a pill and the person gets better, um, even on the so-called placebo, we say, well, it's a placebo effect. Well, we chose the placebo because it has no effect. Now, we're attributing an effect or something that we chose because it has no effect. There's a logical problem in there somewhere. Now, what we have, what we've discovered though, is an placebo ability. And when the person thinks that they are possible, that they may uh, improve themselves. This is a probably an example of the placebo ability. So I think she would talk about the placebo ability. And then the question arises, um, are there mind-body states where the placebo ability can be intensified? Mm. And I think that's one of the things that's happened with, with the psychedelic use psychotherapeutically. But a lot of other, other things too. The way, and we notice that when people are happy, and their life is going well, the job is going well, they are they are physically healthier. And when they are stressed and things are going 
poorly, they got sick. Now, what about the situation in which the person not only feels happy, but feels happier than they have ever felt before and actually ecstatic? Does that really boost the immune system a lot? Does the placebo ability reside in that state? Mm. And um, there are these rumors of people who've done psychedelic experiences and had, quote, spontaneous recoveries. Now, there are, are a certain number of spontaneous recoveries that happen spontaneously. But is the frequency more often in those who have had very powerful affect, very powerful emotional states? And would that then um, make it more likely that the placebo ability would be intensified? Um, and might be intensified an enormous amount. You know, we, if we get if we're a little bit happier in our jobs and relationships are going well, that's good on a moderate scale. But what about if we get extremely um, happy and extremely sort of centered? Does that boost the, the, the ability a lot? Mm-hmm. Now, a problem, something I think should be looked into there is the vagus nerve you know the, actually it's called a nerve there are actually two of them but then they, they connect basically the the brain and the guts basically yeah. it's, it's, and communication goes up and down in it. Yeah. now i'm curious uh, i would love somebody to start look at where the um, vagus nerve plugs into the brain or arises from the brain depending on how you look at it um is it possible using psychedelics or let's say neurofeedback or any of these mind-body techniques to activate that area where the to, to increase the um, communication between the vagus nerve and the guts on one level and the brain on the other. Mm. And can we learn to have more traffic in the vagus nerve and learn to control it for, for powerfully good, healthy reasons? I think we can. You yeah. know, you know a, a lot of the receptors for LSD are down in the guts. Yes, yes. Not, not just up here. Yeah, the five H two A receptors yes. are, are not just in the in our in our brains. Our guts are a second brain. Yes, yes. that's right. So yeah. if if we, if we can learn to, to to turn the vagus nerve from a little path to a super highway, we may be able to do wonderful things with with our own um, physical biological health you know you, you there's an interesting parallel here that just occurred to me you know as you talk about your mind apps and as you layer these technologies in uh and begin to say hey these are new ways of using these kind of apps you know what we're doing uh with gathering which is our communal way of of preparing people for psychedelic experience antheogen experiences uh for spiritual growth and healing is we're using what's called polyvagal theory. Now, this is developed by Dr. Stephen Porges, and his understanding of the, the vagus nerve, as you said, is bidirectional. And he says human beings' nervous systems regulate when we're in a circle of a group of people. And we're designed almost like sitting around a fire. And when we are in a group of people, our nervous systems, because we're looking at the vagus nerve that connects the eye and the mouth, we're looking for the proper smile that the crinkle in the eye and the upturned smile indicates to other mammals that you're safe. And when I see that, the the vagus nerve begins to send a signal down into the gut to move into a parasympathetic. And if you don't see that with no affect on a face or judgment, the, the nervous system ramps up into a sympathetic. And so he says, in order to regulate nervous systems, we need to be in these groups that need to be safe, connected, and and whole. And when we do that, our our nervous system regulates. Now, here's what we've developed. We have paired polyvagal theory of group work 
then we place them into a psychedelic experience with that same group. It takes about eight or nine weeks to regulate their nervous system. So we use that app, that kind of that technique of nervous system regulation. And then we give them a medium to high dose psychedelic experience in a group that they feel safe, connected and loved. And their experience is about five X than what they when they can same the same amount of uh, uh, mushroom same amount there they have a way deeper more profound experience when they're in this safe setting because their nervous system is down into a very calm safe parasympathetic place they can go deeper into their psychological uh, issues of trauma and without fear because they're in this safe community so you, you you can just talk about layering these techniques uh and we're finding fascinating things that develop when you start using these kinds of tools together so your group, let's say, of five or six people get to know each other first. And yes, 10 weeks. A bunch of friends, so they're feeling... Okay. 10 weeks. With, with a facilitator that creates a really what we call a trauma-informed model, which is very predictable. This is how long you can talk. You can't dominate the conversation. We're not here to fix each other. We're here to see each other. There's, a, there's an equality in the group. So we have a bunch of other kind of things that are going on. But it really creates the sense of safe and trust. And once that's established, then they're ready for a deep altered state experience like this. So it's a very different model than, let's say, flying to Costa Rica and dropping into a, you know, ayahuasca yeah. experience with a group. This is we, we kind of scaffold this experience for 10 weeks before you go into the state. And that's a very and it has a very, very different result. So you're, you're moving the indigenous um techniques into our culture that's exactly right and we use indigenous uh, teachers in our in our program mm. to really teach breath work so these are the tools so we know that's another tool that's another mind app you know we know the power of breath stan you know showed that holotropic breath work can produce just as deep a psychedelic experience as an lsd trip and i couldn't believe that until i had my first breath work session where you're doing this rapid inhale and dropping out rapid inhale and the oxygen and, and dioxide, carbon dioxide change allows you to go into an altered state experience where your mind goes clear and you can access deep, you know, and he, he moves into the, you know, the perinatal matrix of birth and the, so yeah, so Stan showed that breath is a powerful tool to move us into these kind of realms. Uh, chanting, as you said, uh, drumming, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, kind of uh, when we deprive ourselves of, of uh, food, fasting, you can move into altered states. So there's many, many techniques that yes. human beings have used to move us into altered state. It's not just been plant medicines. And in a very a real sense, we're importing them from other cultures, too. Yeah. Yeah. We're not just importing cars and yeah. stuff. You know, yeah. one of the things that you said, and this is how you start your chapter in the book, Psychedelics and Spirituality, it's the final chapter, uh, Entheogen Idea Map, Future Explorations, and you start with this quote, and I want to read it, because it's, it's, to me, it's quite a controversial quote, and I'll tell you why in a second, oh. you say this, it's, uh, it's a quote from uh, uh, Wilson Van Dus uh, and uh, you said this, uh, there is a central human experience. I'm reading it, which which alters all other experience, not just an experience among others, but rather the very heart of the human experience. It is the center that gives understanding to the whole. Once found, life is all uh, uh, once found. Life is altered because the very root of human identity is deepened. 
So what you're saying here is you're saying this is not just one of many other experiences. You're arguing that the altered state experience, the non-ordinary state experience, is actually foundational to the human experience. Can you yes, dive into that? Because that is saying this is not just a nice thing to me. If you're if you like it and it's kind of cute, you want to try it. You're saying this is actually fundamental to being human. Yes, I mean one book called The Taproot of Human Experience. Yeah, everything else comes out of it. Yes. So that's, that's controversial it. because that's you know you you are saying that this is the foundational taproot of what it what it means to be human to be an aware consciously aware human is that you are you have an ability to move into other states of mind body and 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 all the other understandings of what it means to be human in reality can be built off of that. Can you dive into that because that's a privileging or a a sense of uh, yeah it's quite an argument to make. I don't know what to say. It's, to me, it's, it's just obvious. <laughs> yeah, but Kate, what, do, do people push back on that? Do they say you're crazy? That's not. I don't, I don't want to do psychedelics, or I don't want to do altered state work. You're kind of a nut job. Oh, oh, sure. Um, there, sure. There's some who who are afraid for various reasons. Um, and um, I think psychedelics are not for everyone, and they may be the people they're they're not for. Um, it's the people I think they would be good for who object them. But you know, they've been through um. Just say no, period, and all the stuff that's been in the newspaper and TV. And we can't, they, they're such that the subjects of their culture, just like we are, only we happen to step beyond it, you know. And um, I'm, I'm trying to um, teach myself after that first um, talk with the uh, provost, you know, to be understanding that these are people are, who are very honest good reasons for being afraid of psychedelics hmm. i think some people shouldn't do them but people in general have been taught they're they're dangerous you know like for a while uh, in in uh, west western europe you didn't want to send out to folk out to the ocean because you fall off the edge of the world <laughs> that was a very real expectation or you couldn't go below below the creek equator because you'd fall off hmm. or you'd have to walk upside down <laughs> that's that's where the antipodes came from. The word antipodes. You know, I, I love I love that analogy because it uh, you're saying, listen, we will get to a place in our evolution as humanity where we will look back on this 50 years of kind of the war on drugs. Just say no, this is scary, and we'll we'll see it as absurd as we see the flat Earth theory that my ship is going to fall off the edge of the world if I should. Yeah. You know, you're saying. Our culture will evolve eventually, and as human human beings evolve in their mind, as psychedelics brings that, you know, as, as these non-ordinary states allow us to evolve to higher levels of, of understanding, you're saying we're going to look back on this 50 years with the same level of absurdity as we thought about a ship falling off the edge of the earth. Yes, and cultures change slowly. You know, they, they can't change overnight. And, and we're seeing that change now as they're moving from the the first biological therapy stage of psychedelics into the religion spiritual stage of psychedelics. And this has been able to touch a lot of people who wouldn't be touched otherwise. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I suppose it's going to take generations. I mean, these things take generations. Yeah. When I first started teaching my course, I thought now that I've taught it, I've broken the ice and I would, I'd be talking at conferences. And after I talked, you know, somebody would come up to me and say, I wish I could teach a course like that at, my university, but I can't. And I thought, well, okay, now that I've broken the course, people will, will come and start teaching theirs. And I was all alone. <laughs> there was nobody following. Wow. And then finally, you know, after a while, people, a few people here and there, and now it's coming along as uh, 
a pretty acceptable thing to do. Mm -hmm. And this is largely thanks, of course, to the neuroscience and psychotherapy people. Mm -hmm. They admitted it was a legitimate topic. And my job now is to try to interest people primarily in the humanities mm -hmm. uh, to show them that they can benefit from this. And um, to uh, uh, my that book, uh, Psychedelic, um, Psychedelic and Spirituality, was to try to get people in religion to start to look at that book. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. So we're coming so along. I think what you're, you know, what you're saying is, is you can, you know, this, this, I'll just tell you my own personal experience. I, you know, my graduate work, I, which I did at, at uh, SFU and, and did some uh, graduate work there in religion and, and philosophy. And I'm reading mystics like, uh, you know, Meister Eckhart, and I can't understand what he's saying. I'm reading no. it with my mind. I'm reading it and going, I, I think I kind of, you know, I don't understand it. And all of a sudden, you know, five, six years ago, now I did my, my graduate work 20 some years ago, but now I have a non-ordinary a, a non state experience with, you know, high dose psychedelics. And now I go back to Meister Eckhart and it's like, it's leaping off the page. Like yes. it's like an aha, like, you know, all of these mystics begin to make sense to me. The desert fathers that I read that are talking about, you know, the theosis, the process of divination, you know, these Eastern Orthodox theologians. And I'm, I don't understand. What are you talking about? The divine, you know, and all of a sudden that all makes sense. And you're saying, what if our pedagogy uh, in the humanities used experiential reality alongside our ability to use, you know, reading. You, you want to do a course on Christian mysticism, read these mystics and do mushrooms three or four times throughout the course as a class and then read them and you'll have hundred times more access to the material than you would just sitting in your head and trying to understand it. That's kind of what you're saying. Yes, I feel I understand the ro romantic poets when they talk about sublime better. To me, that, that was a just a, a word out there, there's a vague kind of word, but now, oh, they, oh, this is what they mean. At least I think that this is, you know, I'm not, you're never sure, but when they talk about sublime experiences, I say, oh, I, I get it. Mm. Or at least I think I get it. Yeah. 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 And yeah, because, you know, again, you're, you're arguing for a different way of, of education. You're saying not, it's not a privileging of the mind or the single state is the only way for us to encounter information or to learn. And you're saying there's other ways for human beings to learn. We have these tools. We have these mind apps that allow us to experience and learn in ways that are very profound. You know, I, I had a woman even this weekend who's, who just, we, you know, we held space for a, a group of, uh, of, of therapists that are being trained in this. Uh, and this person said, Peg, my entire life, I can tell myself I need to have compassion. I need to have love for me. You know, I can read that. I can know that. I can kind of think that. But I've been stuck for 20, 30 years and I can't really experience it. I had a four hour experience on psilocybin. And what I encountered was the love that was out there wow. became here. And now I can never undo that. I feel yeah. loved. I feel that the divine loves me, not I know it, I, I encountered it. And she yes. says, it's, it's like Paul on the road to Damascus. It's like Moses at the burning bush. It's like Jesus on the, you know, the Mount, the transfiguration. It's like, you know, those are the stories that this person is like, those are the only stories that make sense of what just happened to me, but I have a new knowing now. How do you, how do you explain that to someone? That's a different knowing, isn't it? Well, you, you don't explain it. You have to do the experience. Yeah. You know, it, it's not, a, it's not a, a problem is that our vocabulary we've developed for speaking in our ordinary default mind-body state. 
And it's not the vocabulary of other states. Like when you're trying to tell somebody your dreams, you know, it, it never really doesn't really come across mm -hmm. because it's a different mind-body state. And our language is not developed to talk about other mind-body states. And there's a whole language challenge out there. Mm -hmm. um, or for people who had, had mystical experiences can talk about mystical experiences to each other. And they're pretty sure they're talking about the same thing. Now, we don't really know whether your mystical experience and how similar it is to mine, but um, we're pretty sure they're pretty much the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's that's a, that's a, that's a real that's a real intellectual problem that we have. Mm -hmm. And of course, well, I mean, the word mysticism suggests all kinds of spooky Halloweeny things too. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and and of course, in the in theology and the psychology of religion, it has a very cluster of experiences that are described. Hmm. Not uh, not Jack and the Beanstalk or something crazy like that. Right. Well, you, I'm sure you are aware of Brian Marescu's book, The Immortality uh, oh. Key, you know? Yes. And, yeah. And he, I mean, he argues in that that there is actually a lineage, lineage coming down from Eleusinian mysteries in the Greek tradition where Plato, Aristotle and the and the elite of, of, of Athens would go to Eleusis go to this mystery, uh, kind of this mystery religion, which operated for a thousand years. This isn't like a one-off. This was a thousand years we know this. They would go into an altered state for three days in the darkness as it ascend in, experiencing death and resurrection in, in, you know, dropping dead to the ego, having this non-dual experience, and that impacted their philosophy, their way of, uh, you know, of, of creating culture. He says that that lineage moves on into Christianity in the early church as women began to serve a psychedelic Eucharist. And he has archaeobotany evidence uh, of entheogenic plants, uh, mainly ergot mushrooms, which is the basis for LSD, inside the vessels that Christian Eucharist, uh, you know, people were taking. So what they're what he's arguing is that that Christianity wasn't a, a kind of an intellectual dogmatic belief system. That this wasn't like believe and you need a priest to encounter God. It was a it was an experiential religion. It was yes. experience the divine for you right now, unencumbered, yes. direct access to divine in a non-ordinary state right now while you take this spiked mushroom wine. And to me, his argument is pretty powerful because that as as Christianity becomes codified with Rome, the, it all the Eucharistic, uh, you know, uh, spiked wine gets outlawed. All women can't serve the Eucharist. It had to be in a church with a male priest, and human beings do no longer have direct access to divine. The psychedelics gets outlawed. That's a fascinating argument. What are your thoughts about that? Um, this points out what I call the, the 500 year blizzard of words. Um, if we want to talk about religion now, we talk about it in terms of words. Like if you ask somebody their belief system, you expect them to tell you what they believe, not what rituals they perform. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what happened largely at what I call the Gutenberg Revolution. Before that, being a Christian in Western Europe, not, not the East, I'm just talking about Western Europe meant um, you would either take part in a ritual or a festival, or more likely you would go to cathedral and you'd watch the priest do it, and you would, you would be an observer of it. But it was about rituals and things people did. Then along came Gutenberg, and he made um, texts available through movable print. And then the text became available to people in general, and we have basically um, the Gutenberg Reformation, and all the, all the changes of religion that have happened since the Reformation, and been all balanced uh, now on words. For example, beliefs, creeds, dogmas, 
all these things are word story arrangements. And if, and if somebody wants to say, I think this is what we should do, you say, show me the text that supports that. It's a word oriented. So for the last 500 years, we've been in a blizzard of words and we've thought of religion in terms of beliefs and words. Like we will call religion belief systems. These are word things. Now, what's happening now is that I think the entheogenic use of, of psychedelics is parallel to the reformation that happened in Gutenberg's time. And we're now on a new entheogenic reformation in which um, we're not, we're, he made the text available and we're making primary experience available. Wow. And that's the big shift that's happening now. That is like your, that last two minutes, Thomas, is like, if I could just take that and broadcast that to our planet, because I think what people are feeling is the end of an era, the end of belief as dominant, the end of privileging of dogma. We, with the last 500 years has been a hell on wheels when it comes to religion, using that as the primary mechanism as dogma and belief is a very male dominated word centric kind of concept. And then you can use it like a sword to say, you're in, you're out, you're, you're a heretic, you're not. And that has developed into so much trauma on our planet. I come from an evangelical background that privileges the Bible as the only revelation of divine, right? And it's literally word for word inspired yes. and true. And the problems that that creates when it comes to denominations and, you know, you get to kick everybody out, you know, and you're the only one left standing because the nine of you in your own belief, you have the proper dogma. But I think our planet is waking up to realizing how destructive this patriarchal notion of the blizzard of words has been to religion. We have destroyed each other with wars based upon books and words. And I think the average human being, when we, when you talk to people, particularly under 40, you know, and you say, hey, tell me, are you religious? And they say, I'm not religious because that's dogma, but I'm spiritual. What they're, what they're saying is this arc, I'm done with this 500 year arc. This Gutenberg re revolution has absolutely wrecked our, it maybe it's been necessary, but it's caused so much pain and violence and war and hate and abuse. And we've kicked everybody out. Women are not privileged. Gay and lesbians are not welcome. Everyone is kicked out. And what's left is white male power on behalf, uh, behalf of words. And so I think the average human being is done with that model. And the idea of a revolution of entheogens that you can experience the divine for you, that is appealing to people and it's gonna wake people up. I'm fascinated by that. Um, the, uh, the minister in our church said something last week I've been meaning to chase down. He said that um, there's a woman whose last name is Tickle, like this sort of thing, mm -hmm. who says that a revolution happens in Christianity every 500 years. Mm -hmm. And um, um, we're right now at the 500 year mark, you know? Phyllis Tickle. 500 years since Gutenberg. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I think it's Phyllis. Phyllis uh, Tickle. I think her name is oh, Phyllis. You know her. Yeah. You know her. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I've got to check, check that down. 
See, yeah, see there's these kind of arcs, you know, and, and we're, we happen to be living in this very interesting time where, you know, you have that, that the last vestiges of, of religion grabbing hold in this really extreme right wing kind of Republican informed uh, religions and fundamentalist, right? There's the last gasps of those are still hanging on. But in underneath that, there's this there's this young revolution of people being open to new ways of, of being with one another that are not based on dogma and belief, but based on experience and love and connection. And I think that's what this, uh, this new revolution with entheogens could, could open up and usher in. I think it's very important to point out to people, this is not a replacement of yeah. existing religion. It's an enrichment of them and a depth of understanding. You're not saying, you know, that the entheogen religions are going to place Christianity or Judaism, but it'll give the, your understanding of them go deeper. Just as text made understanding deeper, mm -hmm. and theater make understanding deeper. Because mm -hmm. then people don't have to feel they have to react against it, but they see a, a way of understanding religion more personally, more individually, more deeply, mm -hmm. rather than rather than say, get rid of this permission, or yeah. this one, and bring in this new brand. Yeah, and I think that, I think about my own life too, Thomas, is like, I think, you know, up until even recently, I've been embarrassed about my Christian faith in the background. You know, I've, I've, you know, I, I had to leave a, a pretty conservative kind of church that just, I didn't, I, I just didn't, you know, connect with their dogmas, their beliefs. I couldn't adhere to them. So I had to leave it. And then I felt, I don't even want to call myself a Christian because the, the connections are so uh, socially unacceptable for me, you know, and I, so I don't even want to use that word. But now when I've come through entheogens, and I've realized that my own personal faith and my own history, you know, my family have, you know, have used these symbols for over 600 years. I come from an Anabaptist Mennonite tradition, and they, these, these symbols have been important to my family. And so I'm kind of re, I'm coming back to them now, back to my own faith, back to my own ordination, back to my Christian symbols, but re-inhabiting them with my understanding that entheogens have allowed me. That these symbols of death and resurrection, of crucifixion, of, you know, even what church is, of connecting to others, you know, I'm beginning to re-engage those symbols with the insights from entheogens. And that gets me really excited. And I want to, I want to pastor people in that. I want to, I want to open up uh, psychedelic spiritual communities that are open and inclusive, but do not privilege dogma, but instead say your own personal experience is what I really care about. Here, take, eat, and see that the Lord is good. Take this mushroom, you know, I'll give you this sacrament. That's what I dream of. Um, do you have a, a, any problem with the Canadian government in this? You know, so we're right in the midst of this gray area, right, Thomas? So you're, you're, yeah. it's very interesting. So at this stage, we are, um, we're creating these harm reduction models. So people can act, they have to bring their own uh, plants, they have to bring their own medicine with them. And we have an incredible uh, access to in Vancouver, it's very open, we have storefronts, you can just walk down the street and buy, you know, buy uh, psilocybin or LSD right from stores. It's kind of where, uh, you know, cannabis was maybe 10 years ago in Canada before it became legal. We also have uh, two charter challenges uh, with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, arguing for Canadians' rights to access these plants based upon their own 
uh, rights uh, to be able to deal with end of life anxiety. And so the charter is going after, um, you know, this idea that we are preventing people from accessing a medicine that can really help them deal with end of life. In Canada, we have made medical assistance in dying. It's illegal. Uh, you can apply for it. If pain is too much, you are a palliative. You can bring a doctor in and that doctor will work with you and help end your life on your terms. That's been codified in Canada. One of the top palliative care doctors, Dr. Valerie Masuda is a friend of mine. She's from Vancouver Island and has, has gone to parliament recently and argued to say, listen, I have, you've trusted me as a physician that you, that I can give a, a, a narcotic that will end someone's life, but you won't give me a tool that can help people deal with the reason why they want to die is because they have so much anxiety. So just give me the tool. This is, give me this access to psilocybin. If you're going to give me the right to kill someone, I should have a right to be able to help someone live their best life as a, in, a, in palliative. And she is getting incredible traction. Uh, there's really? an interparliamentary committee that says we think that should be an automatic. And so we have four months for the parliament mm. to ratify that. So there's massive changes happening in our country around this. Wow. That's, that's, that's very hopeful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. So the, the next step, though, is to say, how do we move from step one, which is this kind of a medical model of, you know, these these plants to entheogens should yeah. a church should a spiritual community have the right to be able to serve this as a eucharist if that's part of their own spiritual community the santo daimi church argued it effectively in canada and they have legal right to import ayahuasca and give their their partitioners their practitioners ayahuasca in a ritual ceremony and i want to argue that uh, there should be spiritual communities across Canada that should have access to psilocybin if they want to use it in an entheogen way, in a safe protocol, in con contained in a, in a proper spiritual community, with proper set and setting, with proper guides. This should be part of spiritual communities across the country. I, I agree with the position. The question I have is that there are all kinds of people who think that they're qualified to lead others who won't be. Yeah, yeah. Further. For the detriment of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And so that we have to be really careful in, in mm -hmm. uh, you know, in what that means. This isn't just, hey, bring it on. Anyone can call themselves a spiritual community and just go, you know, do, do, right. do this, yes. use psychedelics, right? Yeah. So we, we want to do that in a safe way, but I, there's got to be a way for us to, to showcase and how to do that. And we've got some models like the Santo Daime Church uh, and others that have done this effectively, kept people safe, and use it in spiritual ways for spiritual enhancement. Um, to me, psychedelics is not just about spiritual, uh, is individual growth. This is about com enhancing community. This is about, you know, helping people heal in community. And so, uh, yeah, this, this can't just be accessible only for those who get in a clinical trial or those people who can afford uh, a $10,000 trip to Peru. We this should be, you know, accessible for the average person uh, kind of on the community level in safe communities that know how to, to to give this experience to people in 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 proper set and setting yeah so that's kind of where that's kind of where we're heading here in canada for you 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 said you are part of a spiritual community um how have how have uh, entheogens enhanced your experience of the divine personally um i, I don't i'm not part of a spiritual community i'm a, a part of an intellectual community okay um well, um, that experience that I had that I first described and subsequent experiences 
um, moved me from basically being a, a non-practicing Protestant to saying, oh, there really is something to religion. It's not just this accumulation of, of words that's grown over a, a period of years like a coral reef, but it's really about some sort of experience. So I started to take religion uh, seriously as an experience or, a or types of experience one could have, and then trying to understand that experience, um, tell other people about it, and work from that angle, and try to work in a, in a scholarly direction. Since I'm in a you know, university, um, it's been very handy being in a university that uh, allows um, open scholarly research. Mm. Now, now I, I have never given it to students as part of my class, and my class basically was 15 to 20 students in the honors program. And I'd probably say maybe two, three, or possibly four had, had any psychedelic experience. Hmm. And, and I try to get them to understand it as an, an idea. Uh, and uh, for example, we would use Stan Groff's book, and they would try to understand themselves and their own experiences, um, psychedelic or regular experiences that way, and find it very helpful that way. They would particularly those who had psychedelic experiences and had some weird sort of thing happen and say, Oh, this is a BPM3, or this is that sort of earth experiences. Mm -hmm. It was very handy for that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'd start off intellectually with uh, uh, Doors of Perception because Holdus Huxley really raises, raises all the religious questions, including the spiritual question. Mm -hmm. So that's the direction that I'd go on that. And then in my book, Mind Apps, I've tried to develop um, more of the intellectual direction on it. Hmm. Yeah. You know, the, we, we call, you know, you, you use mind apps. We, we, I've heard people call it biohacking, right? Um, which is, you know, we have our biology as human beings, but when you kind of hack it, you begin to find these little quick, quick, you know, ways of, you know, doing like a little hacks, right? And so breath work, you know, can be meditation, uh, you know, any kind of other non-ordinary state can be really helpful at solving problems, dealing with anxiety, um, connecting with, you know, divine, connecting with others. Like these, these apps, as you call them, or biohacks, uh, they, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, couples go through a program like we have, a, we have a 12 week program uh, that prepares people and teaches some of these mind app tools and then gives them an altered state experience. But we'll prime it with couples to enhance their marriage. So we're saying, hey, we can use these tools to help you move away from maybe been married 20, 30, you know, 30 years like myself, I've been married 32, and you get set into patterns with your spouse that you want to break. And they're really hard because they're, maybe there's some, there's been an issue in your, your marriage where you've been bumping up and you just kind of let that go. Uh, psychedelics or entheogens can be an opportunity to move beyond those little spaces that you've stopped and to find a new unity as a couple and to move through that without fear. We know that the amygdala is deactivated. So areas of, of fear are, are dropped down and we can be really, as you're coming off the high dose experience, being this really heart open space with your partner, engaging with them in ways Couples are reporting uh, connections in powerful, powerful ways, right? So we, we can see that for family, think about uh, the possibilities for, uh, you know, uh, vision quests that you could do with children coming of age. We've lost all rituals around becoming, uh, you know, coming of age ceremonies. Can you imagine fathers, groups of fathers going out with their sons into the woods and saying, you're going to be, you're going to be doing some psilocybin and you're going to be out here and we're going to, we're going to teach you on how to learn to engage what it means to be a man and to get rid of your ego for a second and to really get in touch with you. 
maybe mothers and daughters go away on a, a moon cycle retreat and they do you know psilocybin together and enhance their connection as a group of women and daughters this is where this stuff is going this is what good looks like you know enhancing family connection enhancing rites of passage so I see entheogens and psychedelics as these incredible tools to enhance our ability to bind and connect with one another as human beings. I think the biggest area that's being met, missed is problem solving, not just interpersonal problem solving, but uh, scientific and artistic problem solving. Mm. Um, the, you know, Jim Fadiman's book, um, A Guide to Psychedelic Experiences, has the best description that I know of of problem solving using psychedelics. He was part of that original experiment that Willis Harmer did that was published in all years of 1966. And Jim is one of the authors on that. And he he presents the data on that that's not available anywhere else in, in Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And anybody interested in, in the problem solving aspect, not just interpersonal problem, but intellectual and artistic problem, really should read that chapter in Jim's book mm -hmm. because it has quotations from the people who are scientists and artists and architects and designers and so forth. And I think that really is the, the part that's really been risked because every field has its problems. Mm -hmm. Human relations is the one that we're most interested in right now, but they're, they're, every field has its yeah. problems. And insights can come from using one's mind in different ways. Yeah. That's where the mind apps come in. Yeah, you know, I think... Uh, Dr. Robin Cartwright Harris, well, he was at Imperial College doing brain scans uh, with Dr. Mm -hmm. Leo Rossman. And when I, I've interviewed uh, Dr. Leo Rossman, who's still there, and he says, you know, we have this famous image of like, here's your brain in a, in a normal single, you know, waking state, and you can see the neural connections that happen. Here's your brain in an altered state with particularly on with a 5H2A receptor lights up, and you have a, like it's a, a 50x neuro, neuro patterns. So, you know, he begins to say what's happening is just on the neuroscience level, they're giving legitimacy to what you're talking about. You're saying yeah. there's a problem and you're stuck facing it only in this kind of certain way what happens when you're in a non-ordinary state is you begin to see a problem from a completely different angle a one that you didn't have access to before you never even thought of it there's no way you could even think of it but this state of mind allows your brain to process and experience a problem from a completely different angle and you can see a solution that is important for our planet i think about it really when it comes to climate issues and, and about, you know, biodiversity issues and thinking about how do we solve some of these major issues? You can think about maybe the answer is to really help people encounter non-ordinary states where they can uh, dive into these problems and to think differently around it and come out with solutions they just couldn't have access to without that. Yes, yes. And it really is absolutely thinking outside the box of our ordinary state, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that, that diagram, the two circles diagram, yeah. the, I, I looked at it and made the mistake. Everybody thought, oh, there's a lot more con uh, communication in the in the psilocybin. There, isn't, there aren't more communications. They're just the same ones are spread over the same more connections. Mm. There's the same number of connections in each of them. Mm. And, the, and the, the psilocybin one uh, has the same number of connections, but connecting with more different places. Right, right. It, it, again, it's, it's the new places that it connects that allows yeah. you to have kind of new ideas, new insights, right? I mean, it's, uh, 
yeah, my my ability to encounter texts now uh, has has radically changed because of my non ordinary states. Like it just, I'm reading differently. The insights that come to me are different. Uh, you know. Um, People like Paul Stamets, who's a mycologist, talk about, um, you know, what difference the, these, these non-ary states do is they, they actually help people become more empathetic, more compassionate, uh, more pro-social. We, we know that. We can see this as, as the direct result of doing these kinds of non-ordinary states, bring people to a sense of understanding others. There is an increase in um, what they call perspective taking. My, my wife's an elementary school teacher, and, and uh, when she reads novels, one of the most important things out loud when you're teaching young children, particularly around 9 or 10, is this advanced skill of perspectival taking, so that you can feel what it's like to be someone else that's not you. You can feel what it's like to be a woman. You can feel what, why through narrative, through, through these other kind of ways. And she says, as I do that, and I begin to let these kids imagine, what would it be like to be that kid bullied in this story? Oh, that would be awful. They're taking perspective. Well, this is one of the most important tools, skills we have as human beings is to take someone else's perspective. Non-ordinary states allow us to take a perspective in a profound way. We mm. can actually feel someone else's feelings. You brought into their experience. You feel their pain. And, uh, and it's profound how it can shift your understanding when you have an experience like that that feels more real than ever any kind of real experience you've had in the waking world. These experiences imprint like a brand on your mm. heart and you can never undo them. You go, I know what that feels like now and I'll be forever changed. We need this for our planet. We need those kinds of experiences for people. We sure do. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So Thomas, what, uh, you know, as you, as you think forward the future here uh, and your most recent book and Mind Apps and the Humanities, you, you, uh, you know, you're kind of saying, my dream, my dream, if I could have it, would be I can see that these non-ordinary states of consciousness can become a tool for the humanities, uh, you know, philosophy, religion, uh, English literature, history, all of these, these kind of fields to almost get kind of uh, a new way of encountering their material, a new way of teaching students. Just dive into that for a second, because that to me is such a, a beautiful um, invitation. I mean, for, for students, imagine that. If, if we could do a humanities degree alongside of uh, the use of non-ordinary states of consciousness. Well, in, instead of just looking at psychedelics as something to study, but look at them as a method of study, a method of doing scholarly research. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mentioned um, psychocriticism, using growth through the mind. Um, that's uh, part of the way. But what I'm thinking of is that we could study a lot of these humanistic psych ideas but getting really into them in depth um through our own um our own psychedelic ex experiences um i'm what an item i'm working on right now is trying to get to a redefinition of the liberal arts um the current definition I'm, uh, uh, I'm using um is that what a liberal education should do is free one from the the, th the thoughts and the feelings of their particular time and place and social class. Mm -hmm. And that's now I'm saying that include, and there's a new version of psychedelic liberal arts, also free one from the limitations and time and thinking of the default state of consciousness. Mm. And this uh, expands the liberal arts to look at the fullest development of the human mind, not just using, using the human mind 
in an ordinary state. We've done a great job in an ordinary state. We've got a long way to go in that state. But still, there are all these other states that need to be developed and used and educated, find out what they're good for, find out what they're good for, find out what we can do in them, what abilities are in them, how do we teach those abilities. And there are all those different mind apps that produce different mind-body states with different types of learning and different things to learn and different skills. For example, the parapsychological skills we've talked about mm -hmm. or problem-solving skills, personal problem or intellectual problems. Mm -hmm. And that's the direction to go. That a real education would be the fullest develop development of every mind-body state and every ability that resides in those states. Now, nobody could ever reach that stage just as nobody can know everything today. But there could be people who would specialize, let's say, in meditative, meditative states and uses for those, or hypnotic states and uses for those, or combinations of various states. Mm. And I can, there could very well be not just a center, but a whole department or even a whole university, which would try to develop all these. One can imagine a, uh, a center at a university that would have people from all these various departments, let's say anthropology and religion, and the neurosciences and so forth, who would make their contributes contributions to the fullest development of the human mind from their own perspective, and then take those perspectives back to apply um, to, to their mind. So there, we, we're in an now sort of developed this island view of the human mind, uh, that's the single state island of, of developing all the ideas and methods of thinking in our ordinary mind-body state. But there are all these other mind-body states and there are their cognitive process, their methods of thinking, and the things that we may be able to learn and do in those states. Mm. So basically, we're, we're setting off a sort of no, no continent of what our minds can be, mm. and really can be if we're going to develop them. And I, I, think, we're, I think we're going to get there, but it may take, you know, a generation or two. I would like to speed it up. Yeah, I know. I know there's a, you know, once you kind of see some of these things of, of what is possible and what is potential and on, mm -hmm. you know, how it can really benefit humanity there, there it kind of creates an urgency. You feel like, ah, I really would love to see this speed up. And I know that there's a natural process that these things have to go through. And we're just shifting this Renaissance. Uh, we're right on the front edge of it right now. Uh, and we're just getting out of the war on drugs. You know, it's just January of this year. Uh, our province in Canada here, BC, became the first province to legalize hard drugs, uh, you know, decriminalize heroin, you know, cocaine, uh, MDMA, and these other ones, because they're realizing that the fentanyl crisis, you know, that the problem of, of, of just criminalizing drugs is, is never worked, and it's become worse than ever. So they're just saying, we got to back off on this war on drugs model. And this, it's not, it's never worked. It's awful. We've only criminalized, you know, these users. And so we're, we haven't been asking, well, why not? Why the addiction? Why the pain? Why the disconnection? Let's go back upstream and find where this disconnection, the dislocation of these individuals, the trauma they've experienced, maybe we can encounter it there and help people at that level. And so it's going to take slow, but we're just coming out of this. But I think the potential of where these uh, these non-ordinary states can can really benefit humanity, it, it's it's really uh, I, I'm very excited that we're on this. And these are technologies; they're tools. Mm. Human beings are tool users. And I'm just saying, uh, let's give each other, let's give you know thinkers and doctors and psychologists and these people, let's give them tools 
And these are these these entheogens are just tools that we can use to build community, to enhance our knowledge, to build a better you know kind of human world than our hearts know is possible. And so I, I'm excited about what you are advocating here, Thomas. And uh, I'm excited for where this is going for sure. Who knows? And there are, there are all the possibilities that we don't know about yet. Mm -hmm. What yeah. is out there that our minds can do that we just don't know? Yeah. And developing new mind-body states will be a clues. Yeah. Yeah, I just think about, you know, people like this Wim Hof, uh, this, uh, I don't know if you heard of him, he's a, he's a breathwork expert uh, out of, I think is uh, Holland, or he's in, he's in one of the Scandinavian countries, and, and his name is Wim Hof, and he just developed a breathwork technique that can really begin to slow the heart rate down, and just calm you into a kind of a calm state using breath holds and breathwork, and he set the world record for the most time in packed ice without hypothermia. And they were like, you know, he's got a YouTube video and, and they're like, how is this possible? You should have hypothermia in about five, six minutes. He spends an hour in full ice with it would just just by just using breath technique. And he it's live. You can watch it. You can just Google it. And you're like, how is this possible? And he says, this is a trained ability that the body has. This is a mm -hmm. technique. This is a technology you can develop. Any human being, I'm not superhuman. This is a human, this is a technique. We're just developing these. And what happens is he puts himself into kind of a non-ordinary state and the, and the heart rate calms down and he doesn't move into panic and he doesn't get hypothermia. And it's just stunning, right? So when you start using that kind of technique paired with other kind of modalities in your mind app model, the potential of what that can help people do uh, is really profound, you know? So, yeah. I hadn't heard about him. And mm -hmm. the, the, you know, I always wonder what else is out there that we don't know about. I know. It's crazy. You know, some of this stuff is really quite profound. So, yeah, um, yeah well, thank you so much, uh, Thomas. I think we're, this is a, a, the first of a, a number of conversations I'd like to have with you because I just love where you are pushing this next stage uh, of, of psychedelic research. You know, you've been around for so long. You've seen where things are coming. Uh, and now you're at this stage in your career where you're saying, listen, I know where we're at. I can see where the potentials are going to go. And there's an opening and a burgeoning of the psychedelic re renaissance to moving beyond just medical or, you know, the, the, the pharmacological, neuropharmacological, moving into the entheogen, religious, spiritual growth, moving then into the idea stage, you know, they call the the ideogen stage into this final stage where it's, it's really this opportunity to layer all these different techniques and tools alongside these, these, uh, these plant models molecules. And uh, so I, I, I love your research uh, and what, what you've been doing uh, so much. Any final comments uh, that you'd say, hey, to me, this is what's getting me most excited about, about the work that you're doing now? I would like to see the people who are interested in uh, spiritual use of entheogens um, connecting with, more with each other, mm. with a list or somebody or something like that. I'm, I'm, I can't do it myself right now. I'm so over, overwhelmed. Mm. I don't know if you would like to do that or, or we can yeah, get Yeah, you know, I have a heart it. for that. I'd, I'd love to be a hub for that. I've been working with a guy named Reverend Hunt Priest, yeah, who I is, know. I don't know if you know him from Lagara, uh, Lagara, Lagara Ministries. Lagara, yes. Yeah. Hunt was part of this, uh, you know, this, uh, in a couple of years ago, Bill Richards did a study on yeah. with uh, spiritual leaders from different traditions and they did a high dose psilocybin experience at johns hopkins looking at the impact of non-ordinary states on the rigidity of belief 
Do you, are you softening openness to others after you have these entheogenic experiences? So that research is just coming out of John Hopkins now, but he has a heart to connect uh, religious uh, and spiritual guides and leaders around entheogen plants and uses. So uh, yeah, this is a heart for me too. This is the area that I really feel a calling into and uh, I'd love to become a hub for people that are like-minded who want to see these entheogens used for spiritual development in spiritual communities in a safe, uh, you know, effective way. So yeah, that excites me. If you could uh, develop, you know, um, um, Google list or a site mm -hmm. or something where people could uh, support and to exchange ideas, I, I want to urge you to do that. And I know people who would want to join that. Mm. Yeah, I have a website. I haven't really launched it yet, but it's called psychedelicjesus.ca. Just, I just kind of bought the domain because it was sitting there and I thought, what an interesting provocative phrase, psychedelic Jesus, right? The and, problem with you that would be Jesus. Because, yeah, I know, because that that because the word Jesus is exclusionary, right? To many other yeah, traditional yeah. faiths, right? Because they already have a reaction to it. And so, and yet I kind of, I see that as just an opportunity to, create that's just one name of many names for a divine source you know uh that's one particular framing of it but it's mul there's multitude of names of of this uh, divine presence that you can encounter uh and, and and engage with so but the idea of creating a spiritual community of multi-spiritual is, is exactly the word to yeah, use. spiritual community of multi-faiths multi-spiritual people secular or religious doesn't matter yes. all yes. with this kind of uh, openness to seeing entheogens as a way to enhance the the spiritual communities that where we live that to me would be yeah that's what good looks like in the future i hope we get that i hope we get that site going okay well I'll, I'll let you i'll let you know thomas i'm i'm working on those kinds of things so i'll definitely keep you in the loop and and i could really use your network as well as i kind of build this out but uh thanks a lot for this conversation today thomas i've had so much fun talking with you Oh, it's, 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 it's talking with a like-minded person is as good as it gets. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I know this. I just feel like the time flew by and I'm like, oh, I wish I wish I lived next door. I could come over for a cup of coffee. We could talk and <laughs> do this together, but we'll have to do this again. Yes, whenever you like. Okay, well, thanks a lot for coming on Unveiled Podcast, where we're talking about psychedelics and spirituality. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Thomas Roberts, uh, who is, uh, has some amazing books. He's, he was a professor emeritus at Northern Illinois University, and I really recommend getting his book called Psychedelics and Spirituality, The Sacred Use of LSD, Psilocybin, and MDMA for Human Transformation. It's a profound book, uh, and your ideas are absolutely cutting edge. Thank you so much for your contribution in this field, Thomas. All the best. Bye. Okay. Ciao.